The light-hearted, effervescent atmosphere of the first movement recalls the music of Mozart and Haydn, while its gently flowing lyricism has a Schubertian flavor. But beneath its simple, seemingly bright veneer lies a wealth of thematic and motivic material creatively reworked in a myriad of variations, permutations, and combinations. Hans Redlich compares Mahler's thematic treatment to the reshuffling of a deck of playing cards. Neville Cardis considers it nothing less than kaleidoscopic. He locates as many as five separate themes in the exposition, while Constantine Floros finds seven. Generally speaking, the movement is structured as a classical sonata with rondo elements, but deviates measurably from traditional first movement form in a number of ways. It contains a false recapitulation, an epilogue in the home key instead of the dominant, and numerous disconcerting pauses, shifts, and meanderings. The predominance of, the, of seventh chords and an emphasis on the second interval are also unusual. Irvin Stein points out that subordinate themes are more predominant than would be expected in a classical format. Mahler's use of scraps of rhythmic and melodic material from this movement in the finale goes far beyond his predecessor's occasional intermovement references. Notwithstanding the charming, breezy quality of the exposition themes that Cook calls whistling tunes and the atmosphere of a pastoral walk through the countryside that Mahler evokes through them, there is a moment when clouds gather progressively until a nightmare climax occurs, immediately followed by a gay trumpet tune. This passage contains a hint of the main theme of the finale. Few symphonic movements by Mahler are entirely free of the dark side, but like the opening movements of the first and eighth symphonies, this first movement is one of Mahler's most consistently pleasant and untroubled. It begins with a three-bar introduction that appears to start in B minor, only to lead directly into the home key of G major, during which flutes immediately establish a light, playful atmosphere with flickering repeated eighth notes garnished with grace notes and accompanied by sleigh bells. After one measure, two other flutes enter with a combination of bird whistle and yodel-like rhythms, while clarinets play a sequence of running sixteenth notes, all treated motivically throughout the movement. Out of these perky rhythms emerges the first theme on three rising notes in violins slightly held back, imitating the typical Viennese practice of beginning a waltz theme slowly and gradually working into the tempo. In fact, this first principal theme has the character of a waltz, yet it is set in 4-4 time. Its Biedermeierish quality engenders a sense of nostalgia. This first of an unusually large number of themes contains three important motives. First, a variant of the motive of longing in the rising three-note upbeat that then falls by a sixth, introducing the theme. Second, a decorative gruppetto-like or turn figure, the motive of peace. And third, a cadential phrase constructed in two parts, consisting of a rising scale in dotted rhythm, followed by 16th note filigree. Mahler said that this charming theme represents supreme bliss,
Immediately after the theme reaches a cadence, lower strings expand upon the cadential phrase, beginning with a three-note upbeat shaped like an upward arch that foreshadows the opening melody of the finale. Horns play with the sleigh bell rhythm with a 16th note triplet added at the beginning of each couplet, while strings continue to develop the theme, shifting its various elements out of their original positions. A variety of dotted rhythms, inversions, appoggiaturas, imitative figures, decorative triplets, and grace notes give the music a rococo character. After the first theme undergoes extensive treatment, a new theme in the home key, G major, enters in a perkier tempo in clarinets. More lively and extroverted than the first theme, it projects itself firmly yet gaily onto the accompanying string figuration that is itself sourced in the first theme. This second theme has an interesting structure. Its second measure is but a variation of its first. Its continuation in strings on a bouncing rhythm is followed by dactylic rhythms and 16th note figuration that play upon elements from the first theme, and it ends abruptly at the end of a long 16th note descending scale, which is the converse of the ascending phrase in low strings heard earlier. Since this new theme is presented in only six measures, it also functions as a bridge passage, contrasting with the dance-like first theme and the more lyrical song-like theme in D major that follows in the cellos. Oboes add a rising three-note upbeat to this third theme that likens it to the first. Floro suggests that this lovely cantabile theme is very similar to a melody in Beethoven's E-flat major piano sonata, opus 27, number 1. Cellos soon add an after-theme that is essentially a variation of the third theme. That theme closes after two brief effusions of sheer happiness that follow upon the after-theme on its way to a gentle, flowing cadence, which is itself aborted by a breath pause, just short of closure. The tempo now eases up as an oboe enters with yet another new melody, stressing repeated anapestic short, short, long rhythms, and once again containing a second measure that is but a variation of the first. 
Staccato eighths on the bassoon accompany the oboe, adding to the perky, coquettish character of the new theme. When a horn joins the oboe, virtually playing the new theme in reverse, strings suddenly pick up the tempo with a rapid descending run of sixteenths, pushed along by descending dotted rhythms in woodwinds that appear to be the end of this segment. This downward thrust stops unexpectedly in a manner similar to, but more demonstrative than the closing measures of the brief second theme. Then the fourth theme continues in a clarinet trio offering another version of this lively theme. The theme's opening figure, imitated by low strings, functions as a transition to the return of the introduction by its likeness to the sleigh bells rhythm with which the movement began. Music from the introduction now returns with other motives from the beginning of the movement, slightly varied and infused with falling seconds. At this point, the first theme's reprise in G major appears to signal a full recapitulation, but instead it serves to round out the exposition and introduce an element of rondo form by its frequent appearances throughout the development and the recapitulation. In a sequence of decorative variations, the first theme is presented first in canonic imitation over repeated pizzicatos with a counter-theme in bass, clarinet, and bassoon, and then in interplay with other thematic fragments scattered around the orchestra. Mahler's deft integration of divergent thematic material within a chamber-like setting is very impressive. A brief codetta ends the exposition in a restful mood on an inversion of the first theme. It eases up delicately to close on the theme's dotted rhythms, now sounding more like a variant of the opening yodel figure. The development section begins with the sleigh bells of the introduction, after which the yodel figure returns in an oboe against a rising dotted rhythmic phrase from the first theme. Each thematic cell is developed, sometimes in isolation and at other times in conjunction with others. A sudden boisterous intrusion of the pizzicato eighths that had accompanied the theme breaks the musical flow for a moment. After a brief interplay in woodwinds on elements of the first theme, the violins softly play an endearing variation of it. The opening notes of the first theme rise sequentially as the music builds to a strong climax, after which whirling sixteenths in the strings wind down quietly to the bass line.
Out of the bass string figuration that concludes this segment of the development comes an umpa eighth note rhythm to which is added a sustained trill in cellos, providing both an introduction to and an accompaniment for a new fifth theme in A major, stated boldly by four flutes in a brisker tempo. It begins like a clarion call on three strongly stated high E's that are reminiscent of the opening repeated notes that begin the cello or third theme. They also recall the motive of the herald from the first movement of the third symphony. A variant of the dotted rhythmic couplet from the first theme is added by bass clarinet to the yodel-like treatment of this figure that appeared at the close of the exposition in the cellos. String figuration keeps the music constantly a whirl. The flute theme's outline recalls the shape of the chorale refrain from the angels' movement of the third symphony. A second wave of 16th notes spills over into the flute theme, now played even more audaciously by a clarinet with its bell held high. A rising chordal triplet is added as an upbeat to the repeated notes with which it begins. That same upbeat is also added to a descending scale on dotted rhythms, thus inverting the form in which it appeared during the exposition. Suddenly, the tonality shifts to E-flat minor. The sleigh bell rhythm returns in flutes, together with a rising scale in dotted rhythm in an oboe, and 16th note figuration played by a clarinet. How creatively Mahler both separates and combines small ensemble groupings that playfully reconfigure fragments of the thematic material, treated with a variety of coloristic effects in the strings, such as colenio, meaning playing with the wood part of the bow, harp harmonics, playing on the bridge, pizzicato, etc. Yet Mahler always maintains perfect balance and clarity of inner voices. When the key changes to F minor, woodwinds add a strident quality to the variant of the sleigh bells rhythm as they take over the course of the development for several measures. Bird calls and yodel figures appear just before the violins enter on a minor key version of the first theme, that suddenly casts a shadow over the otherwise bright and breezy atmosphere. (laughs) ¶¶ 
As the violins expand upon this theme, always against a wealth of thematic fragments strewn around the orchestra, it begins to take on a yearning quality on wider intervals and shifting minor tonalities. Now a completely unexpected change of mood occurs. Horns, on a rising variant of the first theme, usher in a section that asserts a renewed confidence as it bursts forth in the resilient splendor of a sunny C major. Winds herald the noontime sunshine with a hearty treatment of the second theme. Sounding more demonstrative than earlier, the second theme takes on the characteristics of a miniature triumphal march to which the horns respond with the third theme, now transformed from a lyrical romance into an heroic horn call. Triangle and tambourine provide decorative elements enhancing the glitter of this rollicking procession. Scraps of the first three themes are interwoven in woodwinds to form countless melodic lines. The string's 16th note figuration that pulled the exposition forward like a strong undertow, but was absent during the development, now returns in an upsurge of overlapping waves that propel the music onward into a powerful dissonant A-flat major chord with added augmented sixth. This chord casts a shadow over the joyous celebration. After a momentary lull, emerges an augmented version of the turn figure from the first theme that will be transformed into the finale's principal theme. A subdued trumpet call follows, known as Der Kleine Appell, the little summons, to distinguish it from its older cousin, Der Große Appell, from the finale of the second symphony. The same trumpet call will open the fifth symphony. As the Kleine Appell diminishes, a strong trumpet signal bursts like a clarion call, the motive of the hero, reminding us of its intrusion at the close of one of the post-horn interludes in the third movement of the third symphony. Mahler creates one of his brilliantly conceived telescoped transitions here. He is about to begin the recapitulation, but instead of letting the development close with the end of Der Kleine Appell, he brings in the beginning of the first theme in woodwinds, just after the trumpet's last tattoo hangs in midair. Then the music stops in its tracks, as if confused as to what to do next. Why, it's simple. Since the woodwinds seem to have come in with the theme before it was due, 
let's just go on with it rather than begin the theme all over again. So after this pause for reconsideration, the strings sheepishly resume with the theme at the precise point at which the woodwinds left off. Is this Mahler's jibe at the problems conductors may face with unfamiliar music? Coincidentally, the second part of the main theme with which Mahler begins the recapitulation contains the rising dotted rhythmic phrase that will be prominent in the finale. One can easily imagine the sheepish grin on Mahler's face when he penned this delightful pun on sonata form. A capsulized rendering of the movement's principal themes now follows, with a new, jollier version of the third theme, asserted staunchly by a solo trumpet, in tandem with the woodwinds, providing a provocative combination of elements from the first two themes. They all end the refrain wildly on a rapid 16th note descent that comes to a dead stop as in the exposition. Woodwinds and strings add a more assertive version of the lyrical third theme marked schwungvoll, effusively. Mahler adds the three-note upbeat of the first theme as an upbeat to the third theme, to bring it to a huge climax that leads to a full cadence. After the orchestra catches its breath, cellos and horns sing out the second part of the third theme. Once again, this theme builds quickly to a strong climax for full orchestra, ending as it did earlier, just before it reaches full closure. Another breath pause briefly suspends the music's forward motion. Then the perky little woodwind, or fourth theme, from the exposition meekly asserts itself. Violins add a contrastingly lyrical counter-theme, and as in the exposition, clarinets arrogantly declaim the woodwind theme until it is interrupted again on a freshet of descending sixteenth notes and dotted rhythms, storming rapidly down the scale in a huff. The woodwind theme returns yet again, this time in darker coloring on the low register of the clarinets, how cleverly Mahler uses the opening notes of the woodwind theme in bass strings as an entree to the return of the sleigh bells, and with them the music of the introduction. Fragments of the first theme follow in variation, the turn figure played backwards by the violins. Yodel figures sound even more flippant than earlier when played in the shrill upper register of the flute and clarinet. How gruff the expanded turn figure sounds in staccato low strings, and how demonic the grace-noted bird-chirping phrase seems when played by muted trumpets. The coda begins as the music becomes more restful, still reworking the dotted rhythm and turn figures from the first theme. Violins reach upward, seeking respite from the unrelenting activity of the extensive development. The motive of longing with which the first theme began now has a yearning quality that tenderly evokes the eternal joy that Nietzsche expressed in the passage from Also Sprach's Zarathustra, set to music in the fourth movement of the third symphony. It is as if we were drawn to the same distant mountain heights to which Strauss ascended in his Alpen symphony. A horn plays a variant of the first theme answered by the original opening of the theme which is played by an oboe and then horn again in turn. 
The music softens to a hush on a sustained minor third chord in violins. Then a solo horn gives out a quasi-military call, much in the manner of the post horn from the Third Symphony, based upon the sleigh bells motive that ends with a falling second. A few pizzicato eighths in the strings add a delicate touch to the refined atmosphere. Slowly and quietly, the violins emerge with the first theme's three-note upbeat, each note of which is held as if coyly hesitating to continue. When the upbeat reaches its high point, the first theme slowly unfolds as if toying with the listener. But it quickly presses up to speed, even passing it, until a jolly allegro on the cello theme ends the movement with unrestrained joy. What fun Mahler has here with the quirks of Viennese style that he knew his audiences delighted in. For example, by exaggerating the way a waltz usually begins, slowly at first and then gradually increasing into the tempo. With somewhat less exaggeration, he had introduced the first theme at the beginning of the movement. His parody of this affectation provides the crowning touch to a delightful spoof on classical style a subject that Mahler will return to in his Seventh Symphony. 